Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On today's episode of Power of the Towel, part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts, the Vancouver Canucks have made a trade related to the Seattle expansion draft. Jason Dickinson, the newest member of the Vancouver Canucks. We'll get into all of that. And of course, the Canucks had to submit their protection list. No real surprises there. The Abbotsford Canucks, it's official. It's going to be called the Abbotsford Canucks, the HL affiliate of the Vancouver Canucks. And our guest this week is none other than Scott Wheeler, prospect guru for The Athletic. We'll break down everything you need to know about the 2021 NHL draft, including what the Canucks might and should do with their ninth overall selection. Should be a good one. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. He's not a person at all. He's a towel. You're a towel. But in Vancouver, mainly it's all about towel power. Are you ready? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Power of the Towel, part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts. I'm your host, Nick Bondi. Before you listen any further, we say it every week. Subscribe to the Next Misconduct Network wherever you get podcasts. Not only do you get this show, Power of the Towel, you get Silky and Filthy, the return of Silky and Filthy. Go check out their most recent episode on the network. But we mentioned it off the top. The Vancouver Canucks, it's official, folks. The Vancouver Canucks have made a trade related to the NHL expansion draft. It's official, folks. They actually they actually did it. I know. It, it was dicey at the end. Friday night, I tweeted out. I tweeted out Friday night. You know, time's a ticking, Jimbo, for the most part. No moves were made, but it came in pretty much at the wire. The Canucks acquired Jason Dickinson, from the Dallas Stars for a third round pick in this year's draft, so they will not have a third year third round pick pardon in uh in this year's 2021 NHL entry draft. And I saw people say it's a great fit, it's a home run, it's a minor W. This is a minor W for the Vancouver Canucks. Good good on Jim for seeing the opportunity. Good on the Canucks for seeing the opportunity and acquiring the third line center. Going forward, I think you know that's the role Jason Dixon's going to feel for the Vancouver Canucks. You know he can't play on the wing, but they acquired him to be that third line center, that third line center who can kill penalties, who has heft, according to sources within the. He's got heft. That's what they were looking for. Now, Jason Dixon again. A minor, it's not a home run. It's a minor W. Good on Jim for seeing the opportunity. 
But I guess there's also, this, first of all, this trade puts to bed two things. First of all, it puts to bed JT Miller being the third-line center next season. He will start on, on the wing, the left wing with Leos Patterson and Brock Besser. I think that's pretty much guaranteed starting next next season. Also puts to bed the notion of three scoring lines. You know, a, a few, I feel like it was a couple months ago, you know, it came out that the Canucks were looking to get, you know, three scoring lines going. Well, Jason Dickinson, not much of a scorer. He is very much, he is very much a defensive center. Very good defensively, but he's not going to bring, he's not going to bring that much value on the offensive side of the ice. So you acquire, you know, Jason Dickinson to be your defensive third-line center to play those tough matchups. I imagine this frees up someone like Bo Horvat to play a lot more offensive game than he's maybe played, especially last season. You know, you don't have Brandon Sutter dragging you down. He's gone. Jason Dickinson is the natural replacement for a guy like Brandon Sutter, but he's actually he's actually decent on, like, Brandon Sutter. Now it's really all about now it's really all about for the Vancouver Canucks what he signs for. Because he is an RFA. He's not he's not a UFA. He is an RFA. It'll be interesting to see how much he signs for. You know, I've seen reports out there that maybe, you know, two and a half to three million is what he's likely to get. But I, I don't blame Canucks fans out there for being a bit nervous about what this RFA contract is going to look like again. We, we've seen what's happened with Jim Benning and overpaying kind of these bottom six guys for. So it is a minor W for the Canucks. No doubt about it. It is a minor W. It's a W. A well-deserved W. But now let's see what he signs for his RFA. I'm excited for Jason Dickinson personally. You know, I think he, he's going to be a good fit as a third-line center. Sounds like for all intents and purposes, Vasily Podkolzin is going to start on his on his wing. That's going to be kind of defensive matchup role that Travis Green kind of likes to roll with. Now you have add Jason Dickinson to the RFA pool that the Canucks need to deal with. Because they got Elias Patterson. They still got Quinn Hughes. Now they got Jason Dickinson. He should be back in the line. Get Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes signed, Jimbo. Time's a ticking. Sounds like both of those guys are going to take bridge deals. Fair enough. I, that's what I expected for a while. Not going to be a surprise to me, but it's time to get Elias Patterson now and Quinn Hughes signed. Maybe try and move Nate Schmidt, sure. Try and move Brayden Holpe. Sounds like there's interest from a bunch of teams, not just the Al Kraken. Move those guys. But also time time to get those two signed. Those are that that should after the mining of a of a you know a good asset, a, a decent player from the expansion process. Now it's time to get those two signed. And in terms of the Canucks protection list, not much, no, not really any surprises. It sounds like the Canucks, you know, are going to lose a Cole Lind or Zach McEwen. I don't think Seattle is taking Brain Holpe. Sorry, Canucks fans. But yeah, no real surprise. The Canucks will not lose a really significant piece in the expansion draft process to. The new rivals, the Seattle Kraken. Maybe Cole Lind. Maybe Zach McEwen. We'll see what the 
the Kraken want to do. There, there's a lot more pressing decisions in the expansion process for the Seattle Kraken than who they're going to take from the Vancouver Canucks. I'm not going to try and hype it up like it's some sort of big deal. You know, Carey Price is out there, for God's sakes. They're probably debating feverishly right now whether to take him or not. So to take old Zach McHugh or Cole Lind or Jonah Gadjevich, whatever, I don't think they're, they're too concerned. But no real surprises for the Vancouver Canucks now that Jason Dickinson is on the team. He's been protected. They're not gonna. I don't think they're gonna take any of the defensemen for the 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 list that the Canucks submitted for protected, protected NHL defensemen was just. I know Quinn Hughes is exempt from the uh, expansion process. So is Niels Hoaglander. But Tyler Myers, Nate Schmidt, and Ole Olevi, like, ugh. I, I kind of would have wanted to see the Canucks try and protect a, another defense, you know, do what they did with Jason Dixon and try and acquire a defenseman to protect, expose a guy like Olevi. But Jason Dickinson, the new third-line center for the Vancouver Canucks, it's safe to say, going to be the defensive matchup guy for the Canucks. So it sounds like they're going to do Pretty much what they did back in 2019-2020 when they had some success in the bubble. Two offensive forward lines, two lines, maybe a ma- maybe a better matchup line for a third line and a fourth line that just has to hold water. Because Jay Beagle's going to be fourth line center, and that's really as much as you can ask at this point in, uh, in Jay Beagle's career. So no real surprises with the Canucks protection list. We'll see who the Seattle Kraken take, but it's not going to be high on their priority list. And for the Canucks, I don't think they're going to lose sleep if they take a they take a Cole Lindor or a Zach McEwen. Let's be honest, folks. But anyways, well, we mentioned this at the beginning of our show in the intro. Our guest this week it is Scott Wheeler of the Athletic to preview all things 2021 NHL entry draft. Just a minute. Don't hang up. Yellow. You'll have to speak up. I'm wearing a towel. Okay, so we now welcome on the Power of the Towel podcast, part of the Next Misconduct Network podcast for our draft preview, the 2021 draft preview. We have recurring guest, prospect (laughs) guru, Scott Wheeler from The Athletic. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Yeah, two times here. Yeah, and you know what? Both times we've had you on when we wouldn't really expect the NHL draft to be happening. First time was obviously last October, pretty strange time for NHL draft. And now uh, we're going to have the NHL draft late July, which, you know, not two straight years where we've had the draft in weird, weird timeframes. Yeah, this one feels almost weirder. I, th- I thought last year's couldn't be beat in terms of just how unconventional it was in the process of losing under 18 worlds and the Memorial Cup and the Frozen Four and all the playoff runs for the various leagues when they all sh- kind of shut down abruptly in, in March. But I think this one's actually been, this draft class has actually been more challenging to evaluate and to get to this point at where we're at now just because of everything that went on this year and, and how the, the pandemic kind of dragged on maybe longer than some people expected and the impact that they had that that had particularly on the OHL and some of the leagues whether it's the Ivy League NCAA schools or the OHL or even the Q and and the WHL not having the seasons that they were hoping for or the abrupt shutdown that happened again with Sweden's 
top junior league where all of those kids basically stopped playing and had to move to third tier pro leagues uh, and, and play with teams in hockey at Tim and all of that. So it's been a, a process to get to this point. We watched a lot of OHL kids play in places like Slovakia and Switzerland mm-hmm. and second tier pro leagues that are frankly quite difficult to evaluate. So uh, it, it's been, it's been a weird one. And I'm happy that next year, I, I just booked all of my travel for next year, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm ha- very pleased that next year we'll be looking more like normal. So when, sorry, when's the draft? Where is the draft? Sorry, next year, Montreal, Oh, Montreal, oh, man, that's going to be so much fun. Two years of all these scouts not being able to see each other in person. You get to go in Mar- Montreal late June, summer. I'm sure that's going to be yeah. a hell of a party. I expect the year after we'll be in Seattle, which won't be the worst place to go. Oh, either, Seattle. So. I don't know if you've ever been to Seattle. I've been there a few times for Seahawks games. Very, very beautiful city. Uh, but I want to ask you personally about, you know, your your process evaluating this draft class. Because as you mentioned, it was a very weird year in terms of, you know, the junior schedule and the hockey schedule in general. Like when we talked last time in, uh, in last October before the draft, you at least had, you know, a few you know, a, a somewhat regular season to evaluate these prospects on mm-hmm. beforehand, right? Like you had like a regular OHL, WHL, QMJHL season before they were obviously shut down. But this year, as you mentioned, OHL straight up didn't play. You know, you had WHL, QMJHL kind of weird schedules. Uh, out in Sweden, they had a suspension of schedules. You know, you mentioned the Ivy League didn't even play at all. And it was just a weird year to, I, I assume, for uh, on your end, as someone whose job it is to cover NHL and draft prospects to evaluate some of these guys. Yeah, most definitely. I'm uh, in a normal year. I'm also on the road normally about two trips a month. So a week and a half, give or take a month, I'm, I'm on the road watching these kids play. And this year there wasn't any of that. I went to Edmonton for the world juniors uh, and that was really my lone trip of this hockey season. And uh, the, frankly, there's only what, 10, 12 kids at every world juniors that are draft eligible that are worth paying mm-hmm. attention to. So it's a pretty small group of players that I actually saw live and in a rink this year, everything else was done on tape. So I'm pretty comfortable with the tape process in terms of my kind of work and the work that I do, but it's different. It was a lot more time spent sitting at my laptop, a lot more time spent on the phone with sources, sort of picking their brains about these kids rather than just bumping into people and having that, uh, that conversation in a more casual way at the rink. Um, so that part of it is, has been weird and has been a challenge in its own way. And then I kind of hinted at it before, but also just seeing kids and trying to evaluate kids in pretty unconventional settings, even the QMJHL, which was probably the most normal of the three, uh, CHL leagues, they played exclusively within their division and did not really play against top teams all that often. Like if you're a top team in your division, you were pretty much beating up on the opposition, uh, on most nights. And then all of those, those leagues, the hockey at Tim, Slovakia, Uh, the Swiss league, which is actually the second league in Switzerland below the national league, which is their sort of top pro rank uh, where there were kids playing in the Swiss league this year. There were kids playing in Hungary and Slovenia. I just did a story on Francesco Pinelli who went over and played in Slovenia in the Alps hockey league, which is a terrible league if we're being honest. (laughs) So that part of it was, was daunting. 
But I think by and large now, I'm actually pretty comfortable with where I'm at on this draft class. And I think NHL clubs are too. I don't think this is going to be some gong show of a draft. I certainly think five, 10 years from now, it's going to be a really interesting draft to look back on and see which teams did well and which teams didn't and sort of ask the questions as to why. Um, but it, by and large, all of the top kids played, it, it's the kids a little bit further down. Yeah. All of the kids that were in the first or second round, they all found places to play. It's the Connor Lockharts and the Ty Voigts, these kids who are sort of in that round four to seven range that just never got to play hockey, never played a single game of hockey this year. And frankly, for those kids who are predominantly in the OHL, um, it's it's difficult to evaluate them uh, based off of last year's tape, if only because this we know that a 16-year-old season in junior hockey is very much a transitional year. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, the, those kids, whether it was Tyve uh, playing in Sarnia or Connor playing in Erie, like that tape is just not what you want to be basing your decisions off. So rightly or wrongly, whether or not those kids should be picked, I think in both of those kids, specifically their cases, they absolutely should be selected. But it, it's going to be tough for NHL clubs to make that decision when they can go and take a kid who was playing in Finland or playing in Russia who played 50 games this season and had basically a regular season. So uh, that part of it is is definitely a ripple effect that teams are going to have to navigate. Okay, Scott, let's get to this year's draft class specifically. Um, I, I got a confession to make. I, I feel, to borrow a phrase from Stephen A. Smith, I feel I, I've, I've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, <laughs> run amok, and flat-out deceived with this draft class because I was promised, I feel like I was promised at the beginning of the year that this draft class was going to be like the chaos you mentioned. It was going to be all over the place. Anyone could go first overall. And now we've sort of settled to a pattern, I feel, with everything I've read that sounds like Buffalo is going to take Owen Power first mm-hmm. overall, and it sounds like Seattle, the new the new franchise, with a second pick, is going to se- select uh, Matt Benier's, uh second overall. So, okay, let's let's start with Owen Power, I guess. Like, what, what has this guy done over the past, let's say, you know, six, seven months to solidify himself as the first overall pick, because just watching watching the YouTube video, I can see why someone would take him first overall. Honestly, right? Like he's mm-hmm. a big guy, he's a good skater, he's got he's got good puck skills for a defenseman. Is that all it is? It's just he has you know you you watch the tape and you see this guy has a potential just the way he looks and the way he moves to be you know a, a big time you know big minute defenseman. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you kind of hit it. I was at a, a Toronto rink, Westwood Arena here in Toronto. A- about a week and a half ago now watching power edge pros prospect camp play out. And Owen was out there with the Cole Perfettis and the Shane Wrights and the Brennan Othmans and some really, really talented players and kids who are in many cases, eight, nine, 10 inches shorter than him. Mm-hmm. And he moves like those kids do. And he looked like one of the best skaters on the ice. And I think that says a lot about who he is and his makeup. And then, I mean, you kind of hinted at what he's done in the last six or seven months, but really with Owen, it, it's, it's been years in the making his season a year ago where he won USHL defenseman of the year as a 17 year old is the kind of season that would make a defenseman a top 10 pick in the draft. Right. So he was doing that a full year before his, his sort of draft year, if you will. And he's one of the older players in this draft. So that bears mentioning, but 
he's had really two excellent back-to-back years where he looked like a top prospect and looked like a legitimate high-end potential top pairing kind of guy. So that has been over, over the course of the last two years. And even honestly, before that, he played three years ago in the USHL and they thought about naming him captain with that Chicago Steel team three years ago. And he was a star on that team, even at that age and had an excellent year for a 16, 17 year old as well. So it's just been a really, really good run of three years of play for him. And then obviously his play at the world championships where he started in sort of a lesser role and then emerged as one of Canada's top players and Canada got better when they played him more. I think all of that kind of solidified him as, okay, this kid is, is not only as a sort of extremely talented and an excellent skater for a kid who's six foot five, six foot six, but he's also already shown that he can sort of hold his own against NHLers. And that's a big deal. And in this draft class where the top 10 or 11 or so prospects are all kind of quirky and weird in their own ways and, and come with a lot of risk in their own ways. Owen's just that, that sort of safe bet and not safe bet in a lacking talent kind of way, like low upside kind of way, but just safe bet in that you can comfortably project him as a top four defenseman in the NHL at this point already. And if he can be more than that, then he's a slam dunk. So uh, it, it just feels like he makes a lot of sense for Buffalo. Now, is there any chance that he doesn't go first overall? Because I was reading that he's considering, you know, going back to Michigan next year. And I, I don't blame him. Like, you're going to have Matt Beniers, you're going to have Kent Johnson there. Why not go back and, you know, make another run at a national championship. Is there any chance Buffalo doesn't take him because he's considering going back to school? Because I'll be honest, if I'm Buffalo, you know, you're going to probably suck next year anyways. Like, what's the harm of him going back to school for one more year? Do you really need him to be around the Sabres next year when they have mm-hmm. another terrible season? Yeah, I, I don't think that's a huge risk to him going first overall, if only because there are no other kids in this draft who are going to play anyway. So it's not like their plan B is a kid who's going to step into their lineup. Um, all of the kids at the top of this draft, even even William Eklund, who has the most pro experience of the bunch, uh, he's planning on going back next year. And I think Beniers, who's probably the most well-rounded forward of the bunch, is best suited to go back next year. So it just feels like they're all going to go back. Uh, Owen, I think, still has a chance to play. He has said he's kind of leaning towards going back. Part of that is because of the way their season ended. They were actually in the national tournament and had to be pulled out due to COVID oh, protocols. Wow. So that was a huge bummer for them. And, and there's some unfinished business for those kids who felt like they could go all the way this year, uh, which rarely happens with a team that was as young as theirs. It's very much a senior-dominated tournament. So, um yeah, it's it's. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what he does, but I do expect he'll go back, and I still think even if he does go back, that he's going to end up first overall. And I'd be pretty surprised if any of those other kids went uh, went that high. Okay, so let's talk about Matt Beniers. First of all, I read your feature on Matt Beniers, which you read, which you wrote, you know, back in January at the World Junior Tournament. Very well done. I thought, you know, really opened my eyes to what these kids have had to go through this past, you know, year and a half with the hockey world kind of, you know, on edge. Will they, won't they play? But I remember watching Matt Beniers at the World Junior Tournament for Team USA, and he was awesome. And then I found out, oh, he's eligible for the 2021 draft. And I'm like, okay, wow, this guy's probably going to go top five. If you're if you're an impact player at the World Juniors, and I'm very much, Scott, a World Junior scout. Like, I watch World Juniors, <laughs> and I watch YouTube videios. That's that's my scouting experience. But I, I, I always, you know, if you have a NHL draft-eligible guy, play as well as Matt Beniers does at a World Junior Tournament, you usually go in top five. Like, that's usually how it works, right? 
Yeah, and just as the Frozen Four is kind of dominated by juniors and seniors and, and rarely dominated by teams heavy in freshmen, it's the same with the World Juniors, exactly. right? It's, yeah. it's a 19-year-olds tournament. Those are the players who rise to the top. You see the kids like the Jacob Pelletiers of last year's Team Canada, where uh, at 17, 18, that kid isn't even a factor for the tournament. And then at 19, even though he's maybe not the most talented player on the team, he's going to play big minutes. He's going to play a big exactly. role. He's going to be a big part of what they do. And so for Beniers to really step into that team and be a top six center for them and play on the penalty kill and play on the power play and be that sort of driving engine that they needed. Uh, and that sort of secondary piece below the, the Caulfields and um, below the, the sort of Trevor Zegras's and the Arthur Kalievs of the world for him to be that secondary piece for them at that age was a big deal. So credit to him. Uh, he also then went back and had a much better second half in college than he did a first half and was also on the world championships and mm-hmm. played at the world championships along with Owen Power, though they were on different teams, obviously. So it, he had a very good year, sort of a very nice kind of nothing. There's nothing exceptional about his season, just as there's kind of nothing exceptional about his game in terms of his offensive upside. But he's a kid who just looks like he's going to be a second line center and looks like he's going to be able to play with other talented players and be the kind of guy who goes and gets it and and plays on the middle of the ice and makes things happen and provides two-way value and then also has enough skill. So I think he's actually been a little miscast uh, in terms of not having that, that kind of upside that he, that I mentioned, I, I would tend to agree that he's not going to be the 70, 80 point player that I think a couple of the other forwards in this draft are capable of becoming at the very top of their ceilings. But if he's a center and those kids are wingers, and if he's giving you 55 to 60 points as a center, then who really has more value to a club, right? That's the yeah. question that I think teams are going to ask themselves. And I think most teams would argue that Veneers at that point has more value. So um, that's, that's the kind of package that he brings. And, and he's just a really good kid on top of that. And one of those very likable sort of leader types that cl- clubs are also drawn to rightly or wrongly. So um, a lot to like about Veneers. And I expect that because of the way that Seattle's likely going to try to build their team, that he's a, a natural fit there as, as both a guy who's closer to the NHL than some of these other kids. And also just kind of a, a culture, good guy in the locker room, that type. Well, just I remember watching him at the World Juniors. He he had that bulldog mentality. Like, he was, you know, mm-hmm. hard on the forecheck every time. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm a Canucks fan and, I've wa- and I watched this guy, you know, throughout his career. He reminded me of Ryan Kessler. And if you can get a Ryan Kessler on your team as a second-line center, like, obviously worked pretty well for the Canucks when they're actually good. So, yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, li- I like Matt Beniers. Like, I can see why a team like Seattle, when you're trying to build up your prospect pool, you pick a guy like Matt Beniers second because – he is a center, and I would say he's as, as close to a sure thing as you can get in this draft for a future NHL player, right? Like, outside of Owen Power, yeah. like, he's probably right up there. But part of the reason I want to have you on, Scott, and why I'm really excited to have this conversation is the Canucks actually have a first-round pick this year. Last time when <laughs> we talked, didn't have a first-round pick, and this year it's a top-10 pick to boot. And every from everything I've read, after you know Owen Power presumably goes number one, and after Matt Beniers presumably go second overall. It's really wide open from, I would say, then on, right? Like, it really, there, there's a kind of, from my understanding, there is, you know, a clear group of however many players, you know, six, seven players that could go from three, three to nine, and then it's kind of wide open from there. So let's talk about a few of these guys. First of all, Kent Johnson. I'm a big Kent Johnson guy, okay? Just from watching the, the, the YouTube videos, of, of a lot of these guys, right? Like, Ken Johnson, he just has that extra offensive flair in his game that I don't really see 
and a lot of these other guys, right? Like, especially the forwards. Like, I like William Eklund, and I, I'm, I'm always a big fan of the Swedish players, especially on the Canucks. But I, just the YouTube videos I watched, uh, there was a couple of plays where I'm like, okay, that's never going to happen in the NHL. You know, that, that NHL goalie is not going to land that shot. NHL defenseman is not going to land that play. And I like Mason McTavish, and I do think it's never a bad idea to take a center in, you know, high up in, in, the, in the NHL draft because that's usually where you get these guys, right? Like it's very hard to acquire a young center via trade or free agency. You usually got to draft them. So I can see why Mason McTavish is appealing as well. But to me, he has a straight-line game for Mason McTavish. Mason McTavish, he's a great skater. He's a great shooter. But he doesn't have maybe the same offensive awareness that a guy like Kent Johnson has. And I know you're a big Kent Johnson guy fan as well because you had mm-hmm. him actually ranked second in your in your kind of draft rankings. Not your projected, you know, mock draft, but your actual just pure draft rankings. You had him second overall. Uh, w- explain to everyone what is so intriguing about Ken Johnson as someone who's probably watched him a lot more and a lot more full games than I have because I watched, I watched the YouTube videos. I'm like, man, this is the type of guy you take with a top 10 overall pick. He has an offensive upside that you just can't find very, very very often. Yeah. And Kent's another guy who kind of like Owen power had a season a year ago before even entering his draft year. That was the kind of season that gets a kid drafted inside the tore up the BCHL, right? Like he was, he was amazing in the BCHL. Yeah. He, he was the best forward in the league by a wide margin and had the kind of season that Tyson Jost and Alex Newhook and some of the top players who've rolled through there have had and did it, frankly, a year earlier than Tyson Jost and Alex Newhook did it. So, um, again, old on the older side of the draft. So that was a part of that equation. But he's a brilliant offensive player. He's one of those players who can sort of drift in and out of shifts. But then you'll see that flash from him and it'll result in a goal. And at the end of the game, he's got two points or three points and uh He's just a special talent. His ability with the puck is really intriguing. He has the best hands in the draft, that's for sure. But it's not just about his ability in the puck. I feel like we focus in too much on that with Kent. It's it's also about more than that. He's an excellent sort of deceptive skater. He passes the puck extremely well. He's got great finishing touch around the net. So there's a lot to like there. The, the big concern with Kent is, and Vancouver fans will be very familiar with this, but kind of the same concern that you had with Elias Pettersson in his draft year, where Kent is, is kind of skinny. He's yeah. a skinny, He's sort a stocky of guy. He wiry. seems like a stocky guy. Or, you know, lanky, sorry. Lanky's yeah, the word I'm he, looking for. Yeah, lanky. And that's just a part of the package with him. It's a bit of a blessing and a curse. It allows him to move the way that he does. I think his skating actually doesn't get enough credit. He's got a very light stride on his edges, which allows him to sort of pull pucks through his feet and dance it from the outside in and that kind of a thing. The the concern that some scouts have is with, is he going to be able to make the same kind of plays at the next level? Does he put himself into trouble a little bit too often with sort of overhandling the puck and that kind of a thing? And and that's part of it. But I I think you take those lumps. And I think if you play him with other talented players, he's going to thrive and he's got clear power play upside. And there are just sort of upper lineup roles that you could envision for him that maybe you don't envision for some of the other forwards at the top of this draft who kind of project as second line players. Like Mm -hmm. I think Kent in the prime of his career has a legitimate opportunity to be a first line winger in the NHL. And he played center growing up and wing this year. I suspect he'll stick at wing, but um, 
he's going to be an excellent player. And sometimes that might come with him playing a little bit too much on the perimeter or, or the odd turnover, that kind of a thing. But every great team has those kinds of players. Not every player has to be the Mason McTavish 200 foot finish every check physical along the wall kind of player. Good teams have blends. And I think Kent has an opportunity to be a really dynamic piece for a club. And in this draft where so many of the forwards, as I mentioned, have concerns about them. I don't think his concerns are any greater than the concerns that you have in a Chaz Lucius or in a Mason McTavish. So it's, he's just a weird prospect in a weird draft. And I, I really like the potential there. And I think if he reaches his ceiling, he's going to be that sort of 70, 80 point player that, that almost no other players in this draft class have an opportunity to be. Okay. So you kind of mentioned already that I'm going to phrase this as a two-part question. Do you think Ken Johnson plays as a center at the National Hockey League level? And do you think NHL, NHL scouts think that Kent Johnson will play as a center at the National Hockey League level? Because if some if some team thinks he can make the transition to uh, as a center in the National Hockey League, I don't think he'll be available at nine for the Canucks, unfortunately. And, you know, I, I just remember, you know, this whole conversation was, can he play center? Reminds me a lot of Elias Patterson, you know, a player you mentioned is kind of a comparable to uh, to Kent Johnson, and that's going to excite a lot of Vancouver Canucks fans listening to it. But you know what? Like that was it, if I think if NHL teams knew that Elias Patterson could play center at the NHL level back in 2017, he'd be the first overall pick, no question. Yeah, and, and they're very different players stylistically. I, I would I would compare them only as far as the sort of hands and skinny, lanky yeah. kind of package. Cause I mean, Elias was a marksman growing up, right? Like that was his yeah. thing, was was that that one timer that he has from the top of the circle and he, the way that his wrist shot kind of pops off his stick. Kent doesn't quite have that quality as a goal scorer. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of where uh, I see things trending with Kent. I do think that, to answer the wing center question that he'll be a winger and that most clubs see him that way. And I think that's shared with virtually all of the quote unquote centers who are at the top of this draft. You'll see a lot of the kids at the top of this draft are listed as centers. And I'm not confident that almost any of them are actually going to be centers. I don't think Kent Johnson's going to be a center. I think it's probably a coin flip, but maybe tilts more likely to wing for William Eklund. I think Chaz Lucius is a better fit on the wing than he is at center, even if he's played center all the way to this point. And Cole Sillinger is the same thing. Cole has played center and wing basically 50-50 the last two years. And I think a lot of people think that he'll end up as a winger. So, uh, and, and then frankly, even add Mason McTavish to that. Mason is a goal scorer and he is not necessarily the player you want transporting the puck up the ice. He's not necessarily the player who you want with the puck in his hands a lot of the time he excels playing off of players like that and being the catch and shoot guy and being the four checking guy. And I'm not sure. And I've talked to a lot of people, people who've coached and worked, whether it's his skills coach, et cetera, with Mason, who also think that he, there's a good chance he ends up with the wing. So really other than Matt Beneers, who I think everyone agrees is going to be a center, all of the top five or six forwards in this draft who are listed as, as centers or wings are more likely to end up at the wing than at center. In my opinion, I, I think Mason, is starting to turn people's minds there maybe a little bit, but the rest are, are probably wingers and, and Kent is fits into that group in the same way, I would argue. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about William Eklund because I think there, there's obviously a chance. I think he can, well, first of all, is there a chance he drops to nine? 
I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility. There are really nine top players in this draft. Mm-hmm. They're like a consensus clear nine. So five of those are forwards. Four of them are defensemen. I think they'll all go inside the top 10. I think the only chance that you get two of those of those nine players as an option by the time it makes it to to 10 or to nine for the Canucks is if one of the goalies sneaks up, yeah. which is also a possibility. So you're either going to be left with one of those kids or two of those kids. And if it's with one of those kids, you probably just take that kid and don't overthink it and be happy. Uh, and if it's two of those kids, it gets interesting. So the, the goalies are always the wild cards. I think there's a chance a goal. One of the goalies goes from kind of six to, to eight uh, and really shakes things up. Um, but otherwise is Eklund going to, is he the most likely of those nine kids to be the last remaining? No, is the answer. I think if there's two kids who are remaining there, that there's a good chance one of those is him, if that makes sense. Um, But if I had to bet on which of those nine kids was going to be available, I'd probably sooner bet that it's going to be Ken Johnson, for example, than that it's going to be Eklund. I think Eklund is in a consensus among scouts, probably a slightly better prospect than Kent, even if I have Ken slightly ahead of him. Well, yeah, you have him ranked uh, William Eklund fifth on your on your draft board. I- I'm always interested in guys like William Eklund because he played on a stacked uh, stacked uh, Swedish team, uh, Durgarden. I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly. Lucas Raymond, Alexander Holtz, both top ten picks, both on the same team with William Eklund. I- is this guy Raymond was not Raymond oh, plays for full full Okay, sorry, I got it was Holtz then. Holtz was yeah, yes, Holtz was yeah. his teammate at, at Durgarden. Yeah, so you know. Obviously, you know, he has a pretty skilled teammate uh, with him on his team. But I'm interested in Willie McLean. How do you see him projecting at the NHL level? Because I mentioned just watching the videos, there was a couple of plays I noticed where it's like, okay, well, the goalie's obviously going to save that at the NHL level. You know, defenseman's going to clear that puck at the NHL level, which led to a goal. What's the upside for Willie McLean? And maybe what are some of his, you know, downsides? Well, I think the upside is that there are really, there really is no downside. That's kind of his okay. modus operandi, if you will. Like he's a just kid who doesn't really have any holes. He, he is on the smaller side. And I think that's why some people project him more as a winger than as a center. But he's, I, w- I would argue that he's a, a pretty burly, strong kind of five foot nine, five foot 10 player. Like he's a heavy on his skates. He, he doesn't sort of get easily pushed around at the pro level. Um, he works extremely hard and then offensively and defensively, it's a very well-rounded package. He's a really good finisher. I'm not sure I would say he's one of the 10 best finishers in, in the draft, but he's, he's not far behind. So he's an excellent finisher. And then he's probably in the top 10 as a skater, sort of closer to the bottom of that list without being a truly dynamic skater. He's still a very good one. Uh, he's probably in that same kind of a range as a passer. Like he's just one of those kids who's maybe not the very best at any one thing in the draft, but grades out near the top of it across the board. Whereas other kids, you might, other of those top forwards, you might find sort of say Kent Johnson has the best hands in the draft, but he doesn't appear. And uh, if you were to grade his other skills, probably doesn't appear in the top 10 anywhere else kind of thing. So those kinds of tools all just sort of pop for, for William. And he's just got a, a very, versatile offensive package and then away from the puck he works very hard he skates well he, he supports the play well he's always above the puck so there's there's not really any cheat in his game either which you can see in a lot of the top forwards at 17 18 years old so there, there's really just 
not a lot to pick holes in and not a lot to be disappointed in. And that I think projects pretty safely for him as, as sort of a top six forward. And maybe he doesn't have the star power that a couple of the other forwards in this draft do, but I think he's going to be a very, very impactful NHL player who can still play at the top of a lineup and still play on the power play and still make an impact offensively um, despite maybe not having that sort of star quality to his game. Okay, so Mason McTavish. First of all, is it fair to call Mason McTavish a straight line player? Because just from the videos I watch, you know, he he has a, he seems like a very good skater. He's got a very good shot, but he, it's a very straight line game for McTavish. And fair enough, I guess he's the he was playing at center at, at Peterborough. But you know, you have him tenth on your draft board, and then you know you have him obviously seventh on your uh, mock draft. Your colleague Corey Promen has him going uh, six to Detroit. Uh, Tell, tell me a bit more about Mason McTavish because, again, it's not like I'm trying to trash William Eklund and Mason McTavish, but, you know, I'd be happy with either Johnson, Eklund, or, I guess, McTavish at nine for the Canucks. It's just, you know, is it because, you know, Mason, you mentioned, sorry, you mentioned earlier that Mason McTavish could play on the wing. Is it maybe he goes a bit earlier because there's maybe a team out there who says, hey, you know what, I think this guy can actually play center in the NHL. Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. The appeal of him as a, as a more likely center than some of those other kids, if you will, is, is definitely real. Um, as far as the straight lines game, I would argue that a little bit, yes, certainly more last year in Peterborough than this year. I think he developed that part of his game and began to make East-West plays more consistently and be a little bit more aware as a playmaker. In his first year in the OHL, and again, in the story that I did on him, people are in his inner circle, his coaches, his skills coach in Ottawa, they kind of said the same thing, but he was at that point uh, in his first year a very much a straight lines player. He was a four checker. Mm -hmm. He was heavy. He's a very heavy kid. I think he would actually admit to you that he's probably a little bit too heavy. Um, and, and that his fitness level is going to be something that he has to work on long-term and that kind of a thing. But he was a four checker and he was a shooter. That's what he did. He didn't really look past. He just went to the net and went to the corners and then went back to the net and tried to get open and then tried to use his very, very hard snapshot to just rip pucks past goalies and did so effectively. He almost scored 30 goals as a 16 year old, which almost never happens in the OHL unless your name's Alex DeBrincat. So yeah. it, it, it's, it, it was a good year for him, but I think he knew heading into his the summer before his draft year that he had to improve as a sort of east-west, more aware playmaker and add a little bit of a passing element to his game. And I think he did a really good job of that. He's still going to be a kind of push and pop for checking goal scorer type that's that's ultimately going to be his bread and butter but i think he made enough progress as a playmaker uh that he's not strictly the the sort of north south straight lines guy that he was so that's I, again i still think that's the strength of his game but i do think there's there are layers there maybe now that weren't there a year ago okay let's uh let's discuss a few of the defensemen uh in this draft class not named owen power uh first off uh luke hughes uh uh there's no chance he falls past the New Jersey Devils, right? In the in the quest to collect all the Hughes brothers, like they're the Exodia cards, they're not going to pass Luke Hughes at, at four, right? Well, I'll say this. I know that he isn't the only player that they're considering. Obviously, there are real pressures there for him to them to take him first of all he's a worthwhile pick in that kind of a range so it's not like yeah it wouldn't be a stretch to pick him, him there right 
No, but obviously Jack has put them in a little bit of a tough situation, if I'm being honest, by being as vocal as he has been about how badly he wants that to happen. Um, obviously, there's another connection to Brant Clark in, within that organization as well, because Graham is one of their prospects. But we know that Graham Clark and Jack Hughes, in terms of the hierarchy with the New yeah. Jersey Devils organization, carry completely different kinds of weight. Um, I think they would also potentially quite like to take a defenseman. I know that they're also interested in Brant. So it, it isn't just about Luke there for, for the Devils, but I do think that ultimately, like if I had a gun to my head and I had to pick a player that they're going to take in this draft, it would still be Luke. Like it just makes too much sense for it to be Luke, I think, for them. And I think when push comes to shove, they'll probably pull the trigger, but they're, they're definitely not. I, I don't think they've made up their minds at this point. So um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Luke is obviously a fabulous skater. He's one of the youngest players in the draft. I believe he was just six days away from being eligible for next year's draft. Um, had the foot injury at the end of the year that cost him his U18s and cost him a chance to really showcase himself, but had a good enough year before that uh, to really establish himself in that group of nine players that I talked about. And I think the excitement with Luke is a, that he's taller than his brothers. He's six foot one, six foot two and B that he's, he can still skate like them. Um, so there, there's a lot to like there. My big concern with Luke and part of the reason I haven't had him kind of in my top five ish uh, range this year. And he's kind of been more in that seven to 10 range is just because uh, I think his transition game is going to be incredible, but I worry a little bit once he's inside the offensive zone, whether he's going to be able okay. to make a lot of plays. He just doesn't have that dynamic quality from the offensive zone blue line in that Quinn has. Um, and, and I think that can put him on the perimeter and he just ends up skating in circles and doesn't really make enough plays for my liking. But transitionally, I mean, his ability to get from A to B to lead rushes and then to defend the rush is, is pretty unique. So, uh, and that increasingly is what, basically all that NHL clubs care about nowadays with their defensemen. So um, that part is really exciting. And then how young he is and the potential for him to grow, maybe that some of these other kids don't have is also very appealing. So uh, we'll see. He, he's, I think he's more of a project than some of the other kids at the top of this draft, but the potential is definitely there. Okay. So in your uh, final 21 NHL draft thoughts article for the athletic, which came out this morning, you go check it out on the athletic right now. You actually ranked in your class superlative superlatives part, sorry, uh, best skater, Luke Hughes. So mm-hmm. who is a better skater in their draft, would you say, Luke Hughes or Quinn Hughes? Ooh, um, very different skaters, again, despite h- how talented they both are and how mobile they both are. I would say that Quinn was a better sort of east-west, shifty, on his edges, on his mm-hmm. heels inside the defensive zone, uh, turning away from pressure, that kind of a thing. I think he was a better skater. But just pushing the length of the ice in straight lines uh, or, or even sort of getting up the ice, I would say that Luke is, is a better skater than Quinn was at the same age. Okay, so Brant Clark. Now, he had a pretty interesting journey, right? Like He had to go out and play in Slovakia this year to kind of showcase himself for the 2021 uh, NHL draft. Uh, how do you project Brant Clark's game you know, going forward? Because you have him ranked third on your, on your big draft board. And uh, you, you, here's your quote on uh, Brand Clark. It can be difficult to project a player like Clark who doesn't play a pro-style game and isn't necessarily going to mesh, which every coach he encounters. But I love the assertiveness and the skill. First of all, going to, he's not isn't necessarily going to me- mesh with every coach he encounters. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I think a lot of coaches want their defensemen want to sort of pull the reins on defensemen who play like Brant Clark. Uh, I okay. think it's taken Miro Heishkinen, a player who play, played a very roving style growing up to get the kind of leash required to play a roving style in a very defensive scheme in, in Dallas. So um, that's Brant's game. He wants to be involved. He wants to be everywhere. He wants to be deep in the offensive zone, making plays. He wants to be walking off the line. He wants to be joining the rush as a fourth forward. And not every coach wants their defenseman to play that way, at least at an early age. So I think it could take Brant some convincing with the coaches that he plays for as he sort of works his way into that style. And then the other thing about Brant is that he has never changed the way that he has played for anyone. Like he played that way with the okay. Donnells Flyers. He played that way in Barry. He played that way against men professionally as a rookie in Slovakia this year. Like he just wants to go out there and be fearless and try to make things happen and kind of be all over the ice. And I, I just think that that game is going to come with some mistakes at the NHL level. It's going to come with some coaches who pull their hair out. That's just going to be a part of his process. But I don't think that's a bad thing. And my ranking obviously indicates that I'm a huge, huge fan of Brant's upside. He is a unicorn. Like I've never seen a prospect who looks or plays anything like him. Um, his knees knock in his stride. He's rides on his inside edges a lot. He is not, I've spoken to a ton of people about him for a diary series that we did with him at the athletic this year, where he kind of led us into his journey and everybody will tell you that he's not a very good athlete. So there, those things are red flags for some teams. And I think they may result in him going towards the back of that group of nine rather than the front of it. But if, if I'm picking, I just see a kid who makes a lot of plays, has skill, a ton of skill. Like he looks like a forward out there, his hands, the way that he sidesteps pressure, the way that he beats layers off of the blue line. All of those things are just so, so impressive with Brandt. And I think they're going to make him a really dynamic offensive defenseman at the next level. And then on top of that, I actually think he's a pretty underrated defensive player as well, who rarely honestly gets beat. So there, there's just there's a lot that excites me about his game. And I think I'd be willing to, to live with some of the warts and some of the sort of weird traits that he has uh, to, just so I could work with him and, and build him into one of the best players in this draft, which I think long-term he's capable of being. You said one of the red flags is he's not a good athlete. If I'm picking a guy to be a professional athlete, that seems like a pretty <laughs> big red flag, Scott. Yeah, but there are guys there. I mean, there are plenty of guys in the league. I guess who, Phil Kessel's like the ultimate example, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, even a kid like Mason McTavish, I don't think people would say that Mason McTavish is a, a great athlete, even though his dad played professional hockey. Like he, he's got that sort of Dustin Bufflin kind of weight that he carries around out there and that sort of baby fat that he carries around out there as well. So, I mean, hockey players come in all shapes and sizes. Brant's just going to be a little bit on this sort of skinnier, more awkward looking side of, of, of the NHL game, but I don't think it's going to be prohibitive uh, for him in terms of getting there. Okay, so Simone Edvinson, hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, I read your feature on him for The Athletic, and the conclusion I came away with, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, is this guy can go anywhere. Like, he's a pretty big enigma when it comes to defensive draft prospects in this draft. Maybe the biggest enig enigma, sorry, of them all. And you have him going fifth to the Columbus Blue Jackets, and I do agree with your conclusion, you know, the Blue Jackets are kind of known for doing their own thing. They had that guy, one guy last year uh, watching the draft where no one on Sportsnet thought he was going at that at that point, and they're all scrambling <laughs> to try and figure out who the hell this guy Igor was. Igor Chinnikov. I'll yes. never forget that. Yes. Yeah. 
And they obviously back in uh, in 2016, they picked uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois kind of out of nowhere at that third overall spot. So what is it about Simone Edvidson that's kind of makes him an enigma with these, uh, with these offensive prospects? Well, yeah, he's one of those kids who I know some NHL clubs have ranked second overall and other NHL clubs have 14th, 15th overall, right? He's just a, 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 there's risk that comes with his game, but there's also tremendous potential. And he's a kid who has hands that are very uncharacteristic of a six foot five defenseman. He, it's really the strength of his game is his ability to handle the puck and his ability to sort of show you a spinorama or show you a, a sort of toe drag and that kind of a thing. Like he just has these incredible hands. And when you're six foot five and you have hands like that and you can walk off the line or weave up ice Mm -hmm. with ease, like he does or escape pressure inside your own zone and just play with a kind of aggressiveness all over the ice because of your ability to handle the puck. That makes you really interesting. Even if the rest is filled with warts, which it kind of is with him. He's a good skater, but he's not a great skater. Uh, he's like Brant and like a couple of the other kids at the top and Kent, et cetera. He still needs to add sort of some muscle to that big frame that he has. Um, he, he could, the aggressiveness that he plays with, with the puck is also mirrored by the aggressiveness he plays with without it, which on one hand results in sort of big open ice hits and uh, a lot of disruption in the neutral zone. And on the other hand also results in him getting burned every once in a while and looking silly with the read that he made. So he's just a very polarizing prospect, but I, I totally understand why some teams are, are as excited about him as they are, because I think if he can put it all together, there will be a ceiling for him that few of the players in this draft also have. So uh, that's the allure is just the, the potential of what if, if we can make this kid what we think he can be, he's got a chance to be a, a special sort of package of, of tools and traits. So um, that that's, I think, what, what has teams so drawn to him. So you said, you know, there's a big range of where teams see him. Do you think he could fall to nine? To the Canucks, is that in the realm of possibility? Or you think, you know, someone sees, like you mentioned, the six foot five great hands and says, we got to take a chance on this guy. I do think it's possible. I think the ripple there is that I suspect the Columbus Blue Jackets at five and the Los Angeles Kings at seven are both going to take defensemen. So if the Devils take Luke Hughes, I suspect that Edvinson or Clark are going to go in quick succession to Columbus and LA. And at that point, you wouldn't end up with any of those four kids. I think if the Devils take a forward, uh, which is also possible, and those other two teams still take defensemen, that there's a chance Edvinson is is left. Um, but I, I wouldn't bet, I wouldn't necessarily bet on him being the guy that that lingers. I, I think it's a possibility for sure, but I still think a player like Kent Johnson is more likely. Okay, so let's quickly discuss the two goalies in this draft, uh, Jesper Wallstead and Sebastian Costa. Uh, first of all, you 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 follow the draft on, on a yearly basis, so I'm sure you're a good person to answer this question. What is it in the last few years that teams <laughs> are starting to take goalies with their first round picks? Like, I thought for a while we were trending away from the fact, like, don't take a goalie with your first round pick, right? Like it was almost like running backs in the National Football League. Like everyone freaks out when it when a, when a team takes a running back for uh, with a first round pick, right? And now we're gonna, we've obviously had Spencer Knight in 2019. We had uh, Askarov last year, and now we're gonna have two goalies in the first round taken. Like, what is it? About, why are teams starting to take goalies with first round picks now? 
Well, I honestly think that there is a reluctance and that the only reason that this trend has happened in the last few years is just frankly, because of the quality of the goalies. Like they're okay. just, they're a cut above the kids who came in the years earlier. I mean, we, we saw teams pass on Carter Hart in the first round, even after he had a, a trophy winning season, we've seen very, very good goalies in the last decade uh, begin to go in rounds two, three, four, five, because teams are a little sheepish when it comes to taking them in the first round. I just think that these three goalies are cut above. Uh, I would put Kosa in a sort of tier as the sort of fourth of them. Uh, I do think that Wallstead, Askarov and Knight are in their own group and that Kosa is kind of a, a small smidge behind them. Um, and as a result, I think Kosa is uh, better as as kind of a 15 to 25 goalie in this draft than the top 15 goalie that the other threes uh, were all deservedly taken in that kind of a range. So uh, it's going to be interesting, though, because there are teams that have Kosa ahead of Wallstead. Um, Kosa's six foot six, which is wow. obviously leaps out at you. And Wallstead's kind of that classic six foot two, six foot three goalie. And he's not small by any stretch, but he's not huge either. Um Kosa's this sort of athletic six foot six goalie. And then Wallstead's a very different kind of goalie. Wallstead is a technical goalie. He's all about his angles and being in position. You almost never see him stray off his lines or get out of position or scrambly. Uh, there's more of that in Kosa's game, but Kosa relies on his size and his athleticism to make those saves. Whereas Wallstead just relies on this sort of robotic control of his lines and his angles um, and of swallowing all of his rebounds. So it, very different goalies. Uh, the, bo- both types of goalies are b- play in the NHL right now. I mean, we've got goalies like the Devin Dubniks of the world and the Ben Bishops of the world that rely on their size uh, and rely on their athleticism. And then we've got the the sort of very technical goalies as well in today's NHL still too. So um, I, I, I understand the appeal of both. I think I would be more inclined to take Wallstead just because of a lot, slightly longer track record, the fact that he's done it against professionals, uh, and just the fact that there aren't really holes that you can poke in his game. Whereas, as as much as you're drawn to Kosa's size, I do think there are uh, areas where he still needs to improve that Wellstead kind of already has covered. Okay, so with these two goalies that are you know deservedly by by your estimation first round picks here, is that the biggest way this draft kind of? blows up in terms of the chaos scenario like maybe one of these goalies like a Wallstead you know sneaks into that top 10 is that Mm -hmm. possible even yeah I think that's definitely possible um I I I think if the Kings for example don't have the defenseman there that they're looking for they might go goalie um there, there are there are teams in that kind of range that it wouldn't be a crazy selection so uh, I, I do think that is is part of the process for some of those teams and part of what they're sort of trying to think through as they go about this is if we if we wait, can we get him, can we move up and maybe get one of those goalies in the teens uh, or should we just take our chance and take him in the top 10? And that's definitely the kind of chaos outcome. I think if if one of one or both of those goalies go, uh, in the top 11 or 12, you'll see some, some really good players slip into the team. So uh, that, the goalies are definitely the, the sort of group of, of players to watch out for in terms of where they could go and what kind of impact that will have on everybody else. Okay, so let's move out of the first round for now. Uh, who are your, some of your favorite prospects that won't be taken in the first round that maybe a team like the Canucks should consider? 
Ooh, that's a very good question. Uh, I think the one kid that is comes up as extremely polarizing, that kind of Arthur Kalyev, Bobby Brink type that could slip into the second round and, and be a really good player there or a really good option there for teams is probably Sasha Pastajov. And not for any of the reasons really that, that Kalyev and, and Brink and those kinds of other players have slipped over the years. Normally those kids slip because A, they're they're small, whether that's a Brink or an Alex DeBrincat uh, or even a Cole Caulfield mm-hmm. falling to 15, um, or they slip because of concerns about their their attitude and their effort level, which is what happened with with Arthur Kaliev. And I, I think none of those, neither of those things are concerns with past job. The concern with past job, who's been a very dynamic offensive creator as a playmaker and a passer and works extremely hard off the puck. The only concern with him is that he's kind of got average to below average skating. And I have often argued with those types of players that that's the one thing that they can they can learn and develop and that the game isn't the track meet that maybe some NHL clubs think it is. I, I think the game really slows down inside the offensive zone. And once you're through neutral ice, certainly you have to play fast through neutral ice, but once you are through neutral ice, things do slow down in the offensive zone and a different set of skills really take over. And I think past job has all of those skills. So he's a kid where if he's available in the thirties at the start of the second round, I would not even think twice in taking him. So uh, that's one player that I would keep an eye on. Logan Stankoven is probably another that I would sort of hone in on. Uh, again, that sort of five foot eight, extremely talented goal scoring kind of offensive threat who I've had people describe to me as a terror inside the offensive wow. zone. Um, that's kind of what you're getting in Stankoven. And then uh, you're also getting a great kid. I mean, he was an assistant captain for Team Canada at under 18s. He works extremely hard off the puck. He's always been viewed as kind of a character guy. Uh, so there, there, there are layers to Stankoven as more than just a give the puck to him at the hash marks and let him shoot it kind of player. Um, he, he's, he's, an, he's a really interesting player. And I think just by virtue of the other forwards in this draft and where they're likely to go. I think he's another kid who could linger into the start of day two. So those are probably the two players I would really hone in on if, if they're available at the start of day two. Okay. So this is a two part question. Uh, who is the going to be the classic guy taken way too early? We have it every year. There's always a guy that gets taken way too early and everyone seems to know it at the time. And the second part, the biggest sleeper pick, like who do you think, Later on, maybe in the first round, maybe second round, has a chance to really, you know, in a couple of years, be like, okay, that guy should not have fallen that far. Well, I think the kid that's probably going to go too high for my liking is Danil Chaika. Uh, he's an older player in this draft. Teams have been watching him for a long time. I actually think the older players who've played three years of junior, the Xavier Borgos, the Danil Chaikas, I think they'll benefit in this draft because teams have, oh, just yeah. have a larger book on them than they do on some other kids. So Chaika played two years in Guelph, should have gone back for a third year in Guelph this year, which is pretty rare for a first-year draft eligible, but played over uh, in Russia throughout the season, played at all three levels, MHL, VHL, KHL over there. Um, Had a a really good uh, performance at a couple of tournaments and then a really ugly one at the World Juniors, I thought. So it, it was just a little bit of a mixed bag for him, but he's a big defender who defends extremely well who a lot of teams I know like. And he's a kid that I would not touch in the first round, but I think will probably go in the late 20s or thir- kind of 31, 32 kind of range. Uh, and I think you'll look back at this draft uh, five, 10 years from now, and you'll see him and he'll jump out to you as kind of a miss in the first round if he goes in that kind of a range. And then 
On the flip side of the coin, in terms of kids that I think have an opportunity to really blossom, I would probably point to Alexander Kisikov, another Russian player. Kisikov is one of the most gifted players with the puck on his stick in this draft. And he, like Kent Johnson, is really skinny. Kind of that 160, even though he's six feet tall, he's only 160 pounds, very wiry frame. Um, so he's a kid who I think there are good odds that he kind of slips, if you will, uh, into that sort of second, third round. And if he's available there, I think he's got a real opportunity to be a, a sort of talented top nine creation kind of forward at the next level, which would be huge value there. So um, that that's a player that I would probably keep an eye on as a, a home run swing, the kind of kid that you just take a chance on in the second or third round. Okay, so just a couple more questions for you, Scott. First of all, Atu Ratti. I got to ask about this guy. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Atu Ratti. He used to be, when was he number one? Because you wrote an article, The Fall from Number One. Was he, what, at what point was he number one? And why did he fall so much in these draft proceedings? Well, really, at the start, well, first of all, at the start of two seasons ago, he was absolutely, I mean, it was very early at that stage, but he was absolutely the guy that everybody was talking about for this draft. So at the end of, it would have been at the end of the 2018-2019 season, he had just, as a 16-year-old, played in the under-20 level and been a point-per-game player at the under-20 level as a 16-year-old in Finland, which almost never happens. So that was a heck of a season. He also played up uh, at under 17s and under 18s and was one of the most productive players on his, sort of his age group, even though he was playing up a year or two uh, at tournaments with those clubs. So that was a big deal. And then even into the start of last season, and by last season, I mean 2020 mm-hmm. uh, or 2019, 2020, rather than this year, uh, he, he was still that guy. He was still that sort of player. He was playing up above his age group. He played in the world juniors in his draft minus two season um so there was a there was a lot of buzz still and then really late in last year when he was a 17 year old playing in his draft minus two he struggled to get opportunities with the pro team in Carpat, which is a team that doesn't give away opportunities for free obviously they're really one of the top clubs there or usually are they've had a couple of rough years the last couple of years but um he was a kid that that sort of struggled and then into this year that just continued and he talked to me about how he kind of fell out of love with playing hockey and really didn't enjoy it and then into this year just kind of struggled and never really produced and was playing in a depth role and was in and out of the lineup and it just kind of got away from him a little bit and I still think he's going to probably be a first round pick if not he'll be a very early second round pick but it just hasn't really come together for him. And now he looks and projects more like a sort of middle six center, more likely a third than a second line center. Uh, and do you want to take that kind of a player with a first round pick is kind of the question that teams are facing. Okay. So who are some of your favorite names from this year's NHL draft? I like Chaz Lucius. Any guy named Chaz always stands out to me. You don't see that name often. Chaz Mackie Samoskevich. I just like the way that yeah. name sounds. That's a good one. What are your, some of your favorite names from this draft? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I have to default to Bobby Orr. Um, we've got a Bobby Orr. His his parents named him for the exact reason that you're imagining yeah. they named him. You, you know, uh, as someone like that, wouldn't you want to go by Robert? Why don't you just go Robert Orr? 
Well, he does go by Robert uh, Orr, but okay. it inevitably becomes Bobby Orr. Even on the broad, the Halifax Mooseheads broadcast, it becomes that. There's another player actually on that same Halifax Moose. They've had some doozies. They had Ivan Ivan a year ago, nice. and they had Bobby Orr this year. Uh, and another third kid on that Halifax Mooseheads team who actually has a hell of a name is Cameron Why Not, spelled W-H-Y-N-O-T, literally spelled Why Not. Um, so I like Cameron Why Not and, and Bobby Orr. Those are probably the two that immediately come to mind. But uh, Mackie Samoskovich is also a heck of a name. His first name's Matthew, but he's actually sort of legally changed it to Mackie. Uh, and I think that's a great name. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, final question, Scott. Who do you think the Vancouver Canucks end up with at the ninth overall slot? I keep coming back to Kent. I know we've talked about him a lot, but I do think he's the most likely of those nine picks. And I get the sense in the conversations I've had that the Canucks actually really like him. So... Uh, I I think that if Kent's there, they'll take him and they'll be really happy about it. All right, you heard it here first, Canucks fans. Load up on those Kent Johnson YouTube videos. That's all. That's all I gotta say on the matter. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast to talk about the 2021 NHL draft. I always leave these conversations knowing a lot more about this year's draft class than I do coming in. I'm gonna impress all my friends with this newfound NHL draft <laughs> knowledge. Well, I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you to Scott Wheeler of The Athletic for hopping on the podcast. Much appreciated. I always learn a ton about the the NHL draft when we have Scott on. It's been the second year we've had him on. And yeah, I did my own research. Again, I'm a World Junior YouTube scout. Did my own research in that regard. But I always learn just a bit more talking to Scott. Great conversation. Hope you all enjoyed it. Now, the other big news from the past week since we've last recorded it's official. The AHL affiliate of the Vancouver Canucks will be the Abbotsford Canucks. Yeah, it's official. The Abbotsford Canucks will be the AHL affiliate of your Vancouver Canucks. And first off, I must have missed the conversation online where we had to get upset about the team name being the same as the, you know, the big club. There's like seven, eight AHL teams that do it. I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's not really worth getting upset over. The logo, I don't mind it. I think it's all right. The Johnny Canuck. If you're gonna name your if you're gonna name your team the Abbotsford Canucks, you don't want them to have the same logo as obviously the Vancouver Canucks. There's a few options. I could have I would I could have gone with the the stick and rink. I could have gone for some version of, you know, the 94 skate. Could have gone for some version like that. But Johnny Canuck, not really used in the past. You know, they had it, I believe it was, it was a shoulder patch for for a couple of jerseys. I think the old uh, the old stick and rink uh, alternates they wore kind of back in the, uh, the 2011 days. That was a shoulder patch for those jerseys. But uh, yeah, yeah, the logo's all right. Again, you wanted something original, but still Canucks for the Abbotsford Canucks. So I think the logo's all right. The jerseys though, the jer- you could have done better they could have done better with the jerseys. The jerseys are pretty trash. They look like Canadian tire knockoff jerseys, Walmart knockoff jerseys, just stuff like that. So again, logo's all right, jerseys are trash. Name not really worth getting upset over. I'm interested to see. We talked about this last week with uh, with Chris Faber. 
of a Canucks Army and the Canucks Conversation podcast. I'm interested to see how this team operates with a lot more pressure on them, a lot more eyeballs. The Utica Comets, yes, they were far away, but outside of someone like Chris Faber and a couple other people, you know, we had him as a as a guest a, a few weeks back. Cody Sievertson did the uh, Comets Harvest. You know, people like that who watch every game. There's going to be, you know, that was really the only connection you had as a fan to the Utica Comets. Now, you know, there's going to be a lot more eyeballs on them. You're going to have access to local beat writers from, you know, the Abbotsford News, all those papers, you know, a lot more people who cover this team. You'll do podcasts like this about the Vancouver Canucks. Are going to be able to get credentialed media access to the Abbotsford Canucks? There's a lot more pressure, a lot more eyeballs on them than if they were, especially from Canucks fans, playing in Utica. So that's... You know, now that now that we have the name, now that we know they're going to start playing in October in the HL, it's going to be interesting to see how the franchise and the players, especially the ones who came over from Utica playing there for the past few seasons, deal with the new pressure of playing so close to the big team, so close to a lot of Canucks fans out there. It's going to be interesting. And they obviously, there's... It was obviously lazy to call them the Abbotsford Canucks, but there's nothing wrong with that. Again, there's like eight other AHL teams called the same as the NHL team. So not not too out of the question. Could have maybe been done a bit more creative with the branding. Sure, but nothing wrong with the Abbotsford Canucks. If you want to have that synergy, that's the way to do it. The logo is, is fine. The jerseys are trash. I, I'm not a fan of the jerseys. Honestly, they're a way jersey that they're going to look like that they're going to have. The, the white look a lot better than the green home jerseys that they're going to wear for their inaugural season. So, again, logo's all right. Jerseys are trash. That's my that's my initial thoughts on the Abbotsford Canucks branding. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they perform next season with a lot more eyeballs on them. Anyways, that is today's episode of Power of the Towel, part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review the podcast network on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week with thoughts on the 2021 NHL Draft for your Vancouver Canucks. Silky and Filthy, I believe we'll be back. Once again, this is Power of the Towel, part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts. My name is Nick Bondi. Thank you for listening.